Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Bernice Harrison, standing in for our host, Cathy Sheridan. Just a quick reminder that the Women's Podcast will be at Body and Soul this weekend. The Irish Times is taking over the Woodland stage on Saturday afternoon, and we'll be recording a special post-referendum episode. It's called The People Have Spoken, so do drop by if you're there. Now, on Tuesday, June the 19th, on RTE1, is the first of a two-part documentary. The series charts the lives of Irish women over the last century. Called No Country for Women, it travels through time, seeking historical answers in the journeys of a number of Irish women today, women whose lives and those of their mothers and grandmothers collided with discriminatory legislation. With contributions from the likes of former President Mary Robinson, journalist Justine McCarthy and trade union activist Mags O'Brien, this documentary pours over the history of women in Ireland over the past 100 years, examining the long-term legacy of a century of government, legal and religious control over women's lives. Anne Roper is the producer of No Country for Women. And historian Dr Mary McAuliffe contributes and was also a consultant on the series. They came into the Irish Times Women's Podcast Studio to talk about it. The Irish state from its inception seriously betrayed the principles and the ideals of the people of 1916 who envisaged a republic of equals. After women had fought for independence, that new state sent women rushing back to the kitchen and they brought in legislation to ensure the oppression and suppression of women. I think it was a, a sort of severe Catholicism that had the most negative impact for women. Their place was in the home, child rearing, playing that support role to the man. The laws that began to be introduced barred women from full citizenship. You do have to ask whether in the end Ireland became no country for women. The clip you heard there comes from the opening sequence of No Country for Women, the first of a two-part documentary series that starts this week on RTE. Anne, you're the producer of this documentary. Where did it start? I mean, the, the, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the name, No Country for Women. That's a dogmatic title. There's no ambiguity there. You have no question mark at the end. So where did the, the, the documentary start? In your head. It started probably back in the 70s when I came to Ireland and was kind of shocked as a young woman. I'm 20 years old and no women had contraception and it was illegal and you couldn't buy condoms. And I thought, gosh, this is very strange. And then I got involved in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and the Well Woman Centre in the early days and I was astounded by the number of women who hadn't a clue about sex education 
and hadn't a clue about fertility control and I realized it was censored. And so I got very involved in the women's movement and I ended up in the 80s writing a book called Woman to Woman, which was, I think, the first sexual health book and it was questions and answers and created a storm partly because I printed the um, names of chemists down the country who were defying the legislation banning contraception. And I did an early family law case, and who was in it but Mary McGee as a case study, and Mary McGee is the woman who first challenged contraception. So I always always felt there was this inequity, and women's voices weren't being heard, whether it was in rape or sexual health or whatever. And then I was a journalist, and I so it's always been there. It's been mm. percolating for years. And even today, like we see this week, we see Trump separating families. Well, Ireland did that back in the 20s and 30s and so on. I have young, bright women saying to me, oh, I couldn't do that job. Oh, I couldn't ask for more money today in Ireland, very well educated. And I have to say to them, where does that come from? And when you talk to people, someone in their family was in a home or was raped or was in an industrial school. It could have been a cousin or an aunt or somebody or was pregnant without being married and had to go somewhere. Um, And I just thought there are legacies in this. And when I knew it was upcoming for the vote, I thought, what better time? I, I wanted to do it during 1916. I thought women's voices that weren't really being heard, except if they were fighters. Mm. Um, that domestic history has always fascinated me. So from that point of view, I, I sort of pushed to get it done. And I thought the vote would be mm. a good centenary to see. Have things changed? Is there the legislation there to back up that this was no country for women for so many years? And I think, and Mary, I hope, will agree... Uh, who's with us as well, uh, that, yeah, the legislation shows the Free State and the Proclamation promised equality for all and almost immediately began clawing those uh, freedoms back from women for a lot of reasons, but largely economic and social control. Well, I think you, you, you mentioned, you know, 1916 at that time. I mean, there was so much... I, I felt tremendous documentary work done. There was fantastic exhibitions that really opened my eyes to the role of women before 1916, the, the, the sort of the revolutionary women that were around before then. And then, so what I'm hoping this documentary explains, I, the big weight now here, this is no, no pressure, because looking at all those documentaries, finding out about all these revolutionary women, and then you think, well, hold on a second. How did we get to where we are? How did we, Mary, as a historian, how did we get to where we are? Well, uh, uh, yes, 1916 and the 1916 Proclamation promises equality Mm. for women uh, in the imagined republic, in the republic they were fighting for. And of course, we have to look at what happens subsequent to that. We also have to remember this radical moment and those radical promises were happening in what was still a highly conservative state. And that highly conservative state reasserted itself almost immediately. And of course, we always forget to mention the big power that was there, the the, the wealthy landowning, controlling of education and healthcare power, the Catholic Church Mm -hmm. that was there immediately on the setting up of the Irish Free State. So you had a poor but conservative government that needed the church to run education and healthcare. That meant it had control almost immediately of hearts and minds and bodies, Mm. of social policies that were to be introduced. We also forget the civil war. And I think the civil war has to be looked at in terms of its brutality, the the trauma of, you know, brother against brother and 
also sister against sister. Mm. And, and our my research and research of many, mostly women historians, have shown um, that women were integral to all of these histories. Um, that the Civil War pushed women aside because women were seen as intransigent. As coming among were in the majority anti-treaty. Uh, and so they become the unmanageable, ungovernable revolutionaries that need to be feminized again, mm. that need to be pushed back, back in into the, the domestic. Back in the home. And also we have to remember we were a post-colonial state mm. that were developing our sense of identity. What were we? Who were we other than, you know, without the British, who were we? Um, and this Catholic state nation for a Catholic people really begins to develop very early on it. I mean, people blame de Valera, but de Valera was just one in a, a line of politicians. Come and the Goyal begin almost immediately clawing back on women's rights and women's access uh, to juries, for example, the Juries Acts uh, in the that 20s. Uh, that was two acts in the 20s that were brought in to prevent women sitting on juries. The first one failed, which was an outright ban. The second one in 27 was a compromise that women... Uh, had to opt in rather than when you became a voting age, you were put on a jury Was list. there any reason given? Do people think women were hysterical or women wouldn't yes, be able to make it? Yes, it was all those reasons. And they thought women... They well, I think there's... Poss- I mean, I think you say in the documentary that it's probably one of the reasons why our rape laws as they are today because we didn't hear voices. There was also censorship legislation yes. where you couldn't pr- print evidence in a... Like in one story we just, we talk about in the in the documentary... If you are describing vaginal uh, rape, you cannot actually word, use the word vagina because of se- uh, censorship mm-hmm. of sexual mm-hmm. information, which also censored sexual health information. So I think that the Juries Act had an incredibly powerful force. And it, don't forget, it's also in property, inheritance, mm-hmm. economic yeah. cases that women. So who is this benefiting? So the, yes. argument, so the argument you're making in this documentary, really, because we, we tend to sort of say, oh, sure, that's the way it was, or oh, sure, that was tight, you know, that was the 30s, that was the 40s, that was... But you're saying, no, no was, this was structural, was this was legislation. constructed. Mm. It was very carefully constructed to develop the type of nation that those who were in power imagined for themselves. And it was for themselves. So it was no country for women, mm. because those who were in, were in power were not women. I mean, you, you have Countess Markovic elected for the first, the first woman elected in 1918. And then you have six women elected in the next election. And then after that, you have two or three women. Mm. You, have, you do have six senators uh, in the upper house in the Senate, as it was then. And they resist a lot of this legislation. I mean, they're furious about the Juries Act, about the Censorship Act, about the Conditions of Employment the Act. The Marriage Bar. The Marriage mm. Bar. The Civil Service Amendment Act that prevented women taking the upper exams in the civil service. So women were positioned at a certain level and, and no higher should you go. And again, that's a structural thing. You're saying it's that was Absolutely. And I think if we look at today, look at our civil service today, we still have such a huge imbalance at the upper levels. And that is a legacy mm. because, of course, you, you, you develop a culture mm. and that culture continues through the generations mm. of mentorship, of people helping each other climb the ladder, of women not expecting. Yes, women not expecting to get the bigger, the higher jobs, mm. um, even though the laws have been rescinded, yes. the culture remains. And so what was put in place during those first two decades of the free state uh, with Comanagoyal governments and then a Fianna Fáil government? And I don't I want to share the blame mm. here. Um, really gives us that misogynistic, sexist, marginalising of women culture in economically, socially 
and through their bodies. So it was an attack through economics with women workers. Conditions of Employment Act said that the Minister for Labour uh, could decide which, where, what industries women could and couldn't work in um, and mostly couldn't work in. The marriage bar, mm. you had to give up on getting married in the civil service and public service. It all service. sounds like an open prison, doesn't it? No, it's the handmaid's tale. <laughs> really? It is it the is, handmaid's tale. Well, and Margaret e- did say she didn't write anything that hadn't happened hadn't already. Happened. But the economic, yes. I suppose the documentaries look at the laws and the economics. Mm. That sounds turgid, but it's all mm. stories. It's all mm. women okay, who talk so about their mothers and their grandmothers to reveal these stories that have happened over the because years. Because this is over two episodes. Yes. And yeah. you, you, you obviously, you know, as a documentary maker, you can tell stories very, very many ways. Mm. You you have opted not for chronology. You've opted to divide the two episodes in different ways. How, well, how are I, they different? They, they are. Each episode has its own chronology mm-hmm. over the hundred years. But then each episode, I was very conscious of if this is maybe the first time such a documentary has been made with women's voices, that women should tell the stories. So I have in each episode at least three and sometimes a few additional, but three main stories mm-hmm. that deal with an aspect of the legal history of this country and how their families, how their grandmother or their mother suffered as a result of the legislation and the economics of the system. Okay, well, we're going to, uh, one of the contributors in the first episode is Samantha Long, and we're going to hear that clip now. My name is Samantha Long. My biological grandmother, Anne Bullen, she would have been a girl when the proclamation was read out. She married my grandfather, and over the next 20 years, she would have eight children. My grandmother spent time in Grange Gorman Mental Institution in between having her babies, and uh, the children did not have their mother at home, and I think that had a a devastating effect on them. So, Anne, can you explain what is Samantha talking about there? So Samantha found out, she sort of subliminally knew, but what we did was we went with her and uh, a psychiatrist, Professor Brendan Kelly, to Grange Gorman, and we, she asked him what women's lives were like in this institution. Subsequently, her mother was born in an institution in Grange Gorman. So part of Sam's uh, journey is in episode one about her grandmother, and then episode two is about, it includes her mother. But what was interesting, and this kind of comes back to the systems thing again, home, you know, when I came to Ireland, I was always struck by, I'm Irish, but I I didn't always live here, but I was struck by land and home and property as being so incredibly important because America people are moving all the time. And it almost seemed to me like it didn't matter where the home was as long as women were corralled someplace. So whether it's in the marital home where they didn't have right to the house through inheritance or whatever, or if it's in an institutional home because they stepped outside the bounds of what was expected of them, or they threatened by being quote-unquote illegitimate and their children potentially threatened ownership of that home. So I thought it was really interesting that Samantha goes on this journey to find out why women were put in these homes because the psychiatric hospital was also used in similar ways to the mother and baby home. There were laundries in them, and Professor Kelly says that sometimes the women were farmed out to other laundries to work, to earn their keep in the psychiatric hospitals. I think he gives me a statistic. Between 50 and 60% were single women in the psychiatric hospitals, and some came in pregnant, some got pregnant in the hospitals, there was sexual abuse in the hospitals. So 
to me, all that na- notion of home, and sometimes we make a vision of home that's all lovely, apple pie, mm. no, but there is a history in this country of it not being. And I also just want to add, a lot of it, I know we blame the church and the state, and we also you know, need to recognize that families did this mm-hmm. as well, but... Because we're looking at the law, the church sometimes followed the state. So, you know, because they were the the, the local government act of 1923, Mary, is interesting, isn't it? Because what it's, happened to there? Well, it actually states if you're pregnant the first time into a mother and baby, if you're pregnant the second time into so a man. That's what you were. And the language of criminality was used. Mm. You were a repeat offender. So why do we say, you know, get your rosaries off my ovaries? When, in fact, it was, you know, government, get get out of my womb. It was was a combination of both. You see, the government is is influenced by social, is is creating Mm. social policies. But those social policies come from belief systems. Mm. And that belief system is, you know, part of your education, part of what you grew up knowing, um, and part of the social policies demanded by those who were running the institutions and the majority of the institutions were run by the church. Now, psychiatric institutions were mostly state-run. They were secular, but they but said they inside had, them they, they broke were, up into the Protestant did, section and, and the Catholic, Catholic section and all right. that sort of thing. And it's incredible. I, I, I like the way you, you talk about the word home. It's it's that women could not be outside of so it's containment. some yeah. guardianship, yes. whether it's the state or the church or the domestic space. And, of course, our constitution constructs the domestic space as the right and proper place for women. And is that a fear of women? It is a fear of women, but it's a fear of women. I mean, Ireland isn't exceptional in this. I suppose our exceptionalism in that is that it lasted so long and we did incarcerate a huge percentage of our population. I think about 1% of our population and a very small population. And when you think about that, that's a lot of people in different institutions for some reason or other. Uh, and a lot of those are women. And it is fear of women, but that's an inherited fear that comes from, you know, Victorian culture and, and further back. The idea of women, particularly women's f- uh, sexuality and women's reproductive bodies, mm. because you have to control how women reproduce. And that's all connected with inheritance land taken and away. land and economics and who gets it. Um, and as um, an old phrase, uh, I suppose, uh, it is a wise man knows his own father. So in, in order to control who is the father, yeah. the patrilineal yeah. Yeah. line, you have to control the womb. You have to control women's womb and mm. what and the contents of that womb are legitimised or delegitimised depending on where a woman and how a woman gets uh, pregnant. And Mary Robinson in the documentary said it also, because the first episode is all, all around woman's place and that whole notion of home and where you're meant to be. And the second is around work. And in the second episode, Mary Robinson said, well, it suited, it, you know, it suited men very well that women wouldn't get jobs because it gave them job opportunity. But I also think, going back to what Mary said earlier about the chaos, if you have a country in chaos, Britain has pulled out its pocketbook, you don't have the money to fund institutions, so you turn to the church to do that. But you also don't want... It's like in school, teachers, women teachers used to be told, control the boys first, make sure they behave. So if you give the jobs to the men then they're not going to be rioting, creating more chaos. Mm -hmm. They will settle down and join in with this new free state. I mean, that's an argument, whether or not it's true or not, or whether or not it's going too far. But if you keep them occupied and employed, they're less likely to create chaos. And I think some of those subliminal kind of thinking, some subliminal thinking along those lines was was there. Mm, I I think there was a lot of complicated arguments on that, that the home was um, um, a space where... 
the family could be and where society, uh, the interests of society lay, but the reproductive marital heteronormative home. It mm. was a particular type of family. And when politicians talked about family values, that's what they that's meant. What they meant. Yeah. Uh, and so women within that space, the domestic angel, um, you know, brought the children up in the right performance of their religion and in good manners and all and, and created, you know, a very solid society. Mm. But then you have you have sort of that binary of the woman as either the marital, the good woman, the respectable woman or the Jezebel. Mm. And the woman who is not the respectable woman is, is a destructive mm. force in society. Mm. She has to be removed. She has to be contained because it's contaminating. Uh, she will influence because she can influence within the home for the good. She can influence outside of the home if she's not under the guardianship of the state or a man uh, or, or the church, as in nuns. Um, she can influence and, and destroy society. In well, so, the second episode, there, mm. we have quite a big chunk about religious orders mm. and the importance of them for good or ill as a professional class. And they were seen as a professional class, yes. according to, to some of the commentators, and that it was one of the jobs, if you wanted a career, quote unquote, if you wanted to do a social good or an educational good or a health good, that it was one option if you didn't want to get married that was seen as respectable both mm -hmm. by the church and state and the community, not both but altogether. Mm -hmm. And um, so that is an interesting aspect of women's mm -hmm. history as well, I think. You mentioned Mary Robinson there and she's one of the, the contributors and she's talk, she talks about her proposal to repeal Section 17 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act 1935. What was this act? Why was it so important? And what, well, you need to give me chapter and verse of the, the, well, well, the exactly criminal, what it was. The Criminal Law Amendment yeah. Act of 1935 actually puts up a, a, a prohibition. Uh, you cannot disseminate sexual health information and you cannot buy, import or sell contraception. In, and they put all this in 1935. Yes, but they, they were legal. You could get them. You could get condoms and abortifacients. Before in, 1935. Absolutely, yeah. In in medical halls, in chemists really? and so on, yeah. Sandra McAvoy is very good on this. She's a, uh, she's a retired professor from UCC and she's very good on it. I kind of knew that back in the 70s or 80s when I wrote my book. I uh -huh. did know that. And that's what fascinated that me. That we wrote back. Well, yes. The Censorship Act had first said you couldn't get information on and it. And that was they 1929. Were still, they yeah. were still available. Right. Uh, that so meant, to however, that like, down. of course, people were getting information on them. Mm. And this completely created a, a ban on. And, and we don't. We don't resent that for a very, very Til long time. So the 1990s. Time. So, and so the Mary 1990s. Robinson was trying to, this was, was yeah. one of her, and we, we, I think we've got a clip of her uh, fr from the documentary talking about the reaction to her proposal. We're going to play it now. Um, completely underestimated the reaction. Through St. Jude, we intercede. And suddenly I was a pariah. I was denounced by bishops in pulpits. Lord, hear us. Archbishop McQuaid required a letter to be read out saying that this measure would be and would remain a curse upon the country. We didn't even get a first reading. So, Mary, that reaction to, to Mary Robinson, was that, was that typical of the time? Well, yes. I mean, if you look at the reactions over the last 40, 50 years to even small steps in, in bringing women out of the domestic equal pay, uh, access to contraceptives, access divorce referendums. The reaction of the church until it began to lose its moral platform in the 1990s, and that's why we don't see them so strong, say, in the marriage referendum and the, the, the last 
most recent repeal referendum was about keeping their power, keeping control and making sure that nothing was going to happen. You have to remember that opposition to the Mother and Baby Act um, in in the 1950s from um, Noel Brown brought a government down Mm. uh, because they, they just did not want to lose control of reproductive rights, of women's bodies, of women's place within the home. And if you controlled women, you were controlling a huge chunk mm. of society. And clearly the pulpit was a very, you know, efficient way to get the message out. I think it's like the social oh, yeah. media yeah. today. Yeah. Like yeah. It, was, yeah. it was where you, that's where you got your news broadcast, yeah. you, did, you know, you until the 1960s, certainly. You have to remember the church controlled down to the, the smallest um, organisational unit in our society, which is the parish. I'm just doing some research at the moment on anti-conscription campaigns in 1918, because this is our centenary. And when the church finally came on board as anti-conscription, it became a powerful force because it could organise from the pulpit, from the front door of the church, in the parish. Um, uh, the only other equitable, uh, I suppose, organisation is the GAA, Mm. um, except it isn't as political in some ways. But the church had the pulpit and you could be called off the pulpit. And it it talked to all the generations, of course. It talked to everybody everybody. in the church. Um, It controlled. And people listened because, of course, in every parish, the two most important people were probably the priest and the doctor and maybe and the teacher. And they were all interconnected because the priests uh, had their... um, training in what they expected to be telling the, uh, their, their congregations. The doctor had probably been trained in a Catholic hospital with the Catholic ethos on reproduction and on women's bodies. Uh, and the congregation were being educated through schools, mm. both primary and secondary, that had Catholic ethos. So they were all talking to each other and it, it, they were singing literally literally <laughs> from, from the, the same, same hymn sheet. And it's a huge social culture. I often think back like I had a, I love nuns, and I had a nun in school who I remember when we had to do the catechism for first communion, and she, it was, who made you? God made you. And I turned to her and I said, "Can I give my own answers?" She was a Dominican nun, and she looked at me and she says, "Yes, Anne, you can." And I think that that whole thing about original sin in Catholicism is kind of you're bad from the start, and you don't have a voice, and there's some people you run into that allow you to have that voice. So I think shame was the huge mm-hmm. controlling factor. And all these people who were going, including me, I mean, I went to mass all my life until I became an adult, what would have been controlled from the pulpit through a kind of sense of you must fall in line with this or you're sinful and you're, there's shame attached to that. And that's a huge social control. No. It is. I, I think we need to talk more about the idea of respectability. Mm. Uh, I hate that term respectability now from studying all of this over the years. And its opposite was mm. or its control mechanism was shame. And shame is such a harmful, harmful um, message to be given. You're shamed if your windows aren't clean enough if your kids aren't well-dressed enough, if you aren't doing the right thing. If your daughter gets pregnant. If your daughter gets pregnant outside of marriage, you bring dishonor. Don't bring shame on the house. Yeah, You know, that was a phrase. You're bringing shame into the house. So behave yourself or suffer the consequence. And there is an economic argument to that even because if you are the person who owns the shop in town and the shame of having a daughter who's had a baby, will people not come to your shop anymore? Mm-hmm. If sure you've been happens. accused of sexually assaulting a young girl, will people not come to your shop anymore? Mm. So I think it, it all is very much integral. Well, another contributor 
is, uh, I'm going to say the name of the programme again, No Country for Women. And I'm not, I now understand fully why there's no question mark at the end of that, <laughs> because the story, what you're, you're telling me now is so powerful. Um, but Catherine Corliss, um, whose life's work has been uncovering the, the horrific Tomb Baby scandal, she talks in, in the documentary about Julia Carter Devaney. Now, we have a, a small clip of that, Anne, but could, could, you, could you tell us who was Julia? Okay. Where did that story come from? Catherine was one of the first people I contacted, and she told me she had a, a recording of a woman who had been in the Chew mother and baby home from the date of 1916. That's interesting, when she was born. It was originally a work, she was originally in Glenamaddy Workhouse. And when the nuns took the children from Glenamaddy when it closed after 1922 and 23 with this local government act we mentioned earlier and moved them all to Tume to the mother and baby home, Julia was kept on as a child domestic and then all of her life till she was 40, well, till she was in her 40s. So this recording made in the 1970s by a neighbor of hers, it's just absolutely fascinating because it captures the life of a woman who actually was there from 1916 until the 1960s. I never knew Julia Devaney. I never heard of her. When I started playing the tapes, she opened doors of the home. The nuns, they said one time, that these children that got into the world without a father or a mother, that child was damned. Julia Carter was born in 1916 in a workhouse. Her mother must have been poor. Connemara, in particular, would have, would have been a desperate poverty. This site where I'm on now is the Glenamaddy workhouse, where Julia Carter spent the first nine years of her life. When the workhouse was closed down in 1922, it was decided that uh, June Workhouse would become a mother and baby home. It's fascinating, isn't it, that the workhouse closed down and sort of it nearly seeded like seamlessly into a mother and baby home. Yes, because As if they're the, the same. Unless thing. I'm misunderstanding, the workhouses were run by the British. Obviously, yeah. it was a colonial yes, institution. Yes, we had to close them. So, but who? But obviously, the pay for those yes. was gone yeah. because the British were no longer paying for the social mm. and health care and so on. So it had to. So there was like a couple of legislations around the same time, emergency legislation to put these things in place. And like there was one actual reference in the Twenty Three Act that says. Um, it specifies Galway, which obviously Tume is in, and it says, you know, that the first-time offender, single mother, is in the mother and baby home and the second into the Magdalene Laundry. And part of, I mean, Julia is, even though it's a recording and we see photographs, she is such a real character. She is alive in this. And you find out what happened to her and her mother. And it, it's absolutely fascinating that this person knew really not really that anything was different, you know, that, that life would be any different because that's all she, she grew up with. And that's kind of a recurring theme mm. in a lot of the women's stories, that they didn't have the information even to know that there was a different kind of life. Well, they're, they're kept in well, these be, places within walls, for, yes, for, yeah. for life, a lot mm. of them, for 
decades. Um, they know no other sort of life. That's why when some of the Magdalene laundries closed down, the women were institutionalised mm. and in many, and some of them are still living with the orders of nuns that they mm. were with uh, with the Magdalens. And still are now. But mm. also, it's it's interesting the way when the workhouses closed down, some of them became county homes and county hospitals. Um, and they were places that people didn't particularly like, even into the mm. Free State and into the because Republic. Because they had the association. Because they had mm. the association mm. with the workhouse. And also it was a place where you went, there was a class thing too. Poor people, uh, working class people went there uh, and I think we it comes out in the documentaries that um, this is very much a class. It's gender and class. Mm. And it Our is inter- about women and poverty. Intersecter- intersecting mm. here uh, in lots of ways. Like In many ways, if a, a, a middle class girl got pregnant, she often went to a private nursing home. She would still not be allowed to keep her baby and, and the whole concepts of shame and respectability operated around what was happening with her too. But in many ways, she didn't end up in the Magdalene Laundry or a mother and baby home or have to work there for many years to pay off a debt. Um, so so the working poor and poverty was seen as a sort of a crime. Yeah. Um, that the, the Mannix Flynn talks about it and he talks about young boys being put into industrial schools for the crime of poverty. Of um, and all, so we these, have a, a all really these institutions are, you know, you, you may have your baby when you're in a mental asylum because you're poor and suffering from postnatal mm-hmm. depression, but your children are put into industrial schools. Mm-hmm. And then 13, 14, 15 year old girls are then moved straight into a Magdalene laundry, yeah. not because yeah. they're pregnant, but because it's a continuation of this state yeah. system, which is about social care. And Lindsay Erner Byrne in the documentary, mm-hmm. one of your colleagues, Mary, she she says that. It's the men in the bowler hats who have this vision of Ireland being Catholic and middle class. Because I used to wonder, why would you, a new country, want to lock up all these women and children when they're making more um, citizens for the country? But no, they wanted the right kind of citizens. They They wanted middle class citizens who owned their land, who, you know, nobody was going to argue over whose ownership because there were no illegitimate children vying for that ownership. And... Finally, it started when I heard these arguments, that aspect of it started to make a little bit more sense to me. But it is absolutely fascinating. Well, when you think about it, I mean, people talk about a lot of the money that was made uh, with the uh, you know forcible adoptions and adoptions to America and the Magdalene laundries. And they do make money. A lot of that money is used to run the middle class boarding schools and the middle class schools that are educating Mm. the Catholic middle class that are necessary for that vision of Ireland. And so people benefit from these campuses, these institutional campuses as well, including local businesses. Mm. Like they they were in the centre of towns. Mm. So somebody supplied the bread and the milk and the, the, you know, the local businesses used the laundry. and who's got, what politician is going to go against a system like that yeah. if it loses them votes because sure. it loses the town the money? Yeah. yeah. So for the documentary, you had um, historians. Uh, Mary, you're a historian and you're a consultant on the documentary. Um, you, had, you had Mary Robinson, so you've tremendous voices. Um, you have archive footage. Yep. And where was that archive footage? Was that difficult to find? Was it? No, I, I love looking yeah. at archives. So I spent a lot of hours on Pathé News and things like that. But also I knew what we had in the RTE archive because, you know, I, I lived the, a lot of the most recent from the 70s onwards. I lived it so I knew what was there, like the 1978 march down O'Connell Street against violence against women. Um, and Margaret Martin from Women's Aid is in, in the documentary talking about that. But the, the whole the, the whole history of it, there it is 
There are things available, but it is interesting that most archive does include men mostly and the, the decision makers. So it's more difficult to find. It's very difficult to find a pregnant woman in archive, to believe it or not. Really? Yeah, you might mm-hmm. see a, a shawl. Is that a cultural over, thing? We don't. Well, I just don't think you, you, you know you men would have been shooting it, and men would have been you know yeah. in, in the twenties yes. and thirties, people didn't have iPhones. They had to you know get out a big film camera that the film would go to pot after a, a period of time, and and so it was an expensive thing to do. So you mostly film politicians mm-hmm. and maybe some At curiosities, or, you know, yes. curiosities of, of Colleen's or down the country picking yes. a shamrock and so on. Yeah, but, but yeah. not real domestic history as lived, not as women live their lives. And well, to that me, that's fascinating. Well, that wasn't seen as important. Um, I mean, even if you look at conservative states today, at, at faith-based religious states today, and, um, you know, if something's happening there and you see images in the newspaper and they say people protesting, yes. if you look at that image, it's mostly men, men almost mm. all men. Oh, almost all. And, and so I w- I'm not at all surprised that it's, mo- it's difficult to find women, but it's always difficult to find women in the archives mm. because women's histories, domestic histories, social histories weren't seen as the important histories and women's voices weren't seen as the important voices. And like you said at the beginning, it's interesting now that we're talking more about the women in the revolutionary movement. In lots of ways, um, women historians have been talking about yeah. that for I'm a sure. long time. Yeah. Mm. Um, but we're finally beginning to be heard. Mm. Um, and so what what Anne is doing is building on a, a body of work that has been done there for a long time. And I think we have to acknowledge that as well, that the researchers and archivists and women historians have been doing this a lot Um And I think it's great. I think this documentary is going to make such an impact. Yes, well, it's been called a landmark documentary and it certainly sounds it. I am very, very much looking forward to to watching it. Um, It's going to be on the player, obviously. Now, it's going to, it's, the first episode is on Tuesday, June 19th. The second is on Wednesday, June 20th. But of course, it'll be on the RT player, which will be tremendous. And there will be additional material. We couldn't fit everything into the two hours that we had, so there's additional material on the player. There's eight different additional stories. There's just one other thing before you finish. That I, for me, I think the important thing is the legacy of this. Yes, we, we may not have known all of this before, and I certainly found out a lot, but uh, Brendan Kelly says in the documentary, you know, what are the things we're doing today that this, you know, not that these will say, point us to them, but what are they? Because we may be doing things today like direct provision, mm-hmm. like women in bed and breakfasts mm-hmm. with children, like the high suicide rate that was announced today in young mothers. And yeah. so so I think are those new variations of a mother and baby home, but they, we just call them something different. Yeah. So for me, the legacy of if, if women can watch this, particularly women can watch this and say, hold on a minute, I do have a voice. I can speak up. I can demand to be in the doll. I can demand to get... More than I shouldn't. I don't deserve fourteen percent less pay. I don't deserve to be only twenty-two percent in the doll. In all the other statistics that we know about, then for me that is what I would hope would come from it. I think so. I think this is a moment we're in a transformational time. I, I believe. Maybe I'm being a bit too optimistic, but I think we're learning from the past, and those legacies are shown us. We have, we can win. We can come out of that and we need to continue. Well, Mary, thank you so much for ending on an optimistic note, because honestly, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I look at Mr. Trump and I'm not. (laughs) Thank you very much. And that's it for today. Look, thanks again to my guests, Anne Roper and Dr. Mary McAuliffe. And just another reminder that No Country for Women airs 
on Tuesday, June 19th and Wednesday, June 20th on RTE1 straight after the nine o'clock news. It'll also be on the RTE player for some time after that. And there's, as Anne said, there's going to be special extras on the player. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us at thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Do stay in touch. Today's podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan and Roshan Ingle with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Bernice Harrison. Until the next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.